The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 7, Chapters 3 through 5. Ever since he was pilloried, Quasimodo's zeal for bell ringing, that innocent and unconstrained joy we celebrated in an earlier commentary, seemed to have grown cold. The cathedral, always alive and resonant with joy bells, had grown somber. Had the shame and agony he suffered killed all emotion with him? Or had Big Marie found a rival in the heart of the bell ringer? Hugo raises this question, but does not immediately reveal the answer. His love of the bells makes a slight return on the day of the Feast of the Annunciation. As they begin to swing, we again see Quasimodo enjoying radiant and heart-swelling bliss. He praises his bells, goads them, delights in them. Until, between the broad slate scales, he glimpses the gypsy girl in the square. He abruptly forgets his bells, crouches down behind the eaves, and fixes on her the dreamy, tender, and gentle gaze that had astonished the archdeacon. Perhaps this answers the question. Some weeks later, Jean Frollo is prompted to pay a visit to his brother the archdeacon by the emptiness of his poor purse. It is worth it, he concludes, to catch a lecture, if he might also catch a crown piece. He heads toward Notre Dame, passing ruefully by the spits and cookshops of the Rue de la Huchette, with no money to buy himself breakfast. Arriving at the cathedral, Jean experiences a moment of indecision. For, he thinks, quote, the lecture is a certainty, the crown piece is doubtful, unquote. But when he learns that Claude Frollo is holed up in his private cell in the tower, he then has the added motivation of seeing, quote, the famous abode of sorceries, unquote. He climbs the interminable staircase and arrives at the scene that I accidentally described in my last commentary. That image of Claude Frollo, engaged in his dark yet dazzling work, the one compared to Rembrandt's etching of Dr. Faustus. It is a room filled with the rubbish of science and stuff of sorcery, all covered over with cobwebs and dust, while Claude Frollo leans over the great table. In the confusion of vessels, flasks, and retorts, what Jeon notices most, given his empty purse and empty stomach, is that there is not a single saucepan, nor a fire in the stove. The walls of the cell are decorated with mottos in letters Gothic, Hebrew, Roman, and Greek. Quote, a confused medley of all human philosophy, unquote. But the entire abode has a look of desertion and decay, as if, quote, the owner had for some time been distracted from his labors by other cares, unquote. The ramblings of that owner, overheard by Jeanne, give us a clue to the nature of that distraction. He raves about gold as the solid form of light, speculates how to wrest from nature her secrets, and muses over the power of feminine names to serve as powerful incantations. Names like Maria, Sophia, Esmeralda, and he stops, cursing the return of that invasive thought. His possession by this fixed idea, he says bitterly, has driven him mad, made him weak, and led to all his failures. Claude Frollo puts his powers to trial, 
striking the hammer of Ezekiel and searching for the magical words that will make it produce a blue spark. Amen, Hetan, Sigeani. And in doing so, he calls down a curse upon all those who bear the name Phoebus. The fixed idea has returned. He angrily throws aside the hammer, falls into his armchair, and then rising, engraves upon the wall in capital letters that word with which our novel opened, Ananke. Jean watches all this in surprise, for, quote, the jovial student had never dreamed of the boiling lava which lies deep and fiery beneath the snowy front of Etna, unquote. Whether or not he then understands, he at least grasps that he has seen something he was never meant to see, that he had, quote, surprised his elder brother's soul in one of its most secret moments, unquote. And he makes a slight noise behind the door as if he had just arrived. Claude Frollo, expecting someone else, is surprised to see Jeanne. Nevertheless, he welcomes the opportunity to express his displeasure with his delinquent brother's conduct. He upbraids him for getting into fights and criticizes him for his weakness in Latin and Greek, to which Jeanne cheekily responds that he can read the Greek Claude Frollo has engraved in the wall. The word fate, and beneath that, impurity. His cunning touches a nerve, and he seizes the opportunity to make his request for money. After a fruitless attempt to persuade his brother that he wants the money to give as charity, he confesses that he wants it for a girl. When Claude Frollo calls him an impure scamp, Jeanne meaningfully repeats the inscription on the wall, Impurity, making the priest blush. Jeanne renews his request for money repeatedly, in response to which Claude Frollo repeats the refrain, Queen on laborat non manducet, or He who does not work does not eat. Denied the support of his brother, Jeanne declares that he will then go fight, drink, and see the girls. As Claude Frollo delivers a stern lecture about how such conduct leads from the pillory to the gallows to hell, footsteps are heard on the stairs. Claude Frollo tells his brother to hide and never to repeat what he sees and hears. Jeanne agrees, in exchange for money. The man who enters wears a black gown and a gloomy air. Observing him, Jeanne concludes he is a man of no importance, a doctor, perhaps, or a magistrate, and curls himself up in his hiding place in despair. The exchange of greetings between the two men suggests that the relationship between the visitor, Jacques Charmalou, and Claude Frollo is that of pupil and master. When Claude Frollo asks whether he has succeeded, Charmalou takes him to mean in producing gold. But no, he means in the prosecution of the sorcerer Marc Senen, whose crimes include uttering magic words like Amen Hetan, an incantation that should have a familiar ring, and using an alchemist's crucible, which, after seizing it, Charmalou tried himself. Alas, despite torturing him on the rack, they have succeeded neither in extracting a confession of sorcery nor of learning his secrets for their own use. He follows this conversation with a foreboding question. When will it please Claude Frollo to have the little witch arrested? Esmeralda. 
and still more forebodingly, Claude Frollo answers that he will let him know. Dom Claude then becomes lost in his own thoughts, and as Charmelou follows his gaze, he sees that it is fixed on a cobweb over the window, where a spider is about to fall upon a fly. Charmelou reaches out as if to save it, and Dom Claude stops him with convulsive force, crying, Do not interfere with the hand of fate. He then explains the universal symbol contained within this web. Esmeralda, happy, young, free, seeking the sun, is the fly ensnared in Claude Frollo's web. But he too is the fly, desiring to gain the pure light of eternal truth, struggling in the meshes of his own passion. And even were he to break the web, the pane of glass beyond it is that crystal wall that separates all philosophy from truth. Restored to himself after these wild ravings, he hears the sound of champing and chewing under the stove. Jeanne, cramped and bored in his hiding place, has discovered a crust of bread and devoured it, by way of consolation for his boredom and of breakfast. The second of my posts was called The Sea of Human Passions. You will see a pattern in my thinking after integrating this with last week's commentary, but the following quote made me scan my mind for other literary archetypes of repression. Quote, He who wore his heart on his sleeve, who followed no law in the world but the good law of nature, who gave free rein to his passions, and in whom the fountain of strong feeling was always dry, so clever was he at draining it daily, he could not guess the fury with which the sea of human passions bubbles and boils when it is denied all outlet, how it gathers and grows, how it swells, how it overflows, how it wears away the heart, how it breaks forth in repressed sobs and stifled convulsions, until it has rent its dikes and burst its bed. Unquote. What a powerful description of repression. In this case, a very sinister form of it. When a character trait is particularly pronounced, I look for other examples of it, and I find it helpful to consider what is similar about the others that come to mind and what is different. Perhaps one of the most touching examples I can recall of the sea of human passions breaking forth in repressed sobs and stifled convulsions is the scene that I've linked in the Facebook group from the King's Speech. You've watched that movie, right? If not, you can stop this now and go over to Amazon Video, but just promise to come back later. In that movie, the poor Duke of York, Albert, has grown up in a home where he was raised by nannies and presented to his parents, was denied all his own desires in favor of what was expected of him, was supposed always to be perfect and was teased cruelly for his faults, and then was required to speak on behalf of the royal family to a nation facing war, despite a debilitating stammer. In this scene, his brother has abdicated, and he has been forced to serve as king to a nation in crisis. It is too much, and the dikes are rent. I've watched this movie with students countless times, and this scene always makes me weep. The diverse causes of Claude Frollo's repression, 
from his early devotion to the Church, to his inexorable pursuit of knowledge, to the dedication of all human feeling to the care of his profligate brother, are very different from those of Bertie in the King's speech. So, too, we can tell already, is the moral tenor of the form in which his passions break forth. So the distinctions might even make irrelevant the connections. But in any case, I find the exercise valuable, and it gave me the opportunity to remind you of this other beautiful work of art. Let me know if there are other archetypes of repression that occur to you. The last of my posts was called The Poor Children. In both 93 and Notre Dame de Paris, we encounter timeless lines and moving scenes that capture a passionate, tender, and reverent love of children. From the description of a child's babbling, quote, A child's murmur is more and less than speech. It is not made up of notes, yet it is a song. It is not made up of syllables, yet it is a language. That murmur had its beginning in heaven and will not have its end on earth. It is from before birth, and it goes on. It is a continuation. That stammering is composed of what the child said when he was an angel, and of what he will say when he is a man. Unquote. To a baby's feet. Quote, Her pretty little pink feet particularly were an endless wonder, the cause of a perfect delirium of joy. Her lips were forever pressed to them. She could never cease admiring their smallness. She would put them into the tiny shoes, take them out again, admire them, wonder at them, hold them up to the light, pity them when they tried to walk upon the bed, and would gladly have spent her life on her knees, putting the shoes on and off those feet, as if they had been those of an infant Jesus. To an infant's eyes, quote, her wide open eyes were looking up and were divine. No matter what ceiling a child may have above his head, the sky is reflected in his eyes. Unquote. Hugo pays poetic tribute to the radiant innocence of childhood, depicts them as angels come to earth, and expresses horror at the prospect that any child, ever, anywhere, might suffer. There's a reason why so many political arguments are given their emotional force by appeals to the suffering of children. Because though there might be disagreement as to the cause of that suffering, there can be no disagreement about the idea that the suffering of innocence is, in itself, a horror. This spirit is expressed with breathtaking beauty in a poem whose existence I only just discovered. It was written by Hugo and translated into English by Swinburne. I had to share it with you right away. The Poor Children Take heed of this small child of earth. He is great. He hath in him God most high. Children before their fleshly birth are lights alive in the blue sky. In our light, bitter world of wrong they come. God gives us them a while. His speech is in their stammering tongue, and his forgiveness in their smile. Their sweet light rests upon our eyes. Alas, their right to joy is plain. If they are hungry, 
paradise weeps, and if cold, heaven thrills with pain. The want that saps their sinless flower speaks judgment on sin's ministers. Man holds an angel in his power. Ah, deep in heaven what thunder stirs when God seeks out these tender things, whom in the shadow where we sleep he sends us clothed about with wings and finds them ragged babes that weep. If you find anything about that poem difficult, I've given a very plain language translation of it over in the Facebook group. And I've also shared an image, which I'm sure almost all of you have seen, that's among the most heartrending I've encountered in years, of a young boy after a bombing in Aleppo. How can such a horror be described? If words are even possible, Hugo found them. At this sight, quote, Deep in heaven thunder stirs, paradise weeps, and heaven thrills with pain. Unquote. 